This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. We have a great show for you today on episode number 524 as we flash back to a show we did with Lou Harriman and Terry Brennan. Lou and Terry were instrumental in development of the EPA's Moisture Control Guide. This is an excellent resource that every IAQ professional and disaster restoration pro should be aware of and should get a copy of. Please visit our Facebook and YouTube pages and leave a comment, like, or subscribe. You can also sign up for the weekly show announcement at iaqradio.com, and you can download our podcast through the Podbean com or iTunes. IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. I also want to thank our gold sponsors, Particles Plus, Healthy Indoors Magazine, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, and AEML Inc. Laboratory. And, of course, our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association and the Restoration Industry Association. Let's get uh, Lou on the line here. Hello, Lou. Do we have you? Hi there, Joe. Good to be here. Great to have you with us, Lou. I I wish I could slip away and give Terry a call. I'm going to try and text him here on his phone. Um, But in the meantime, let's start out with your impression of uh, this document. You know, what, do you know what led to the development of this document in the first place? Uh, sure. I'm familiar with it because I've been involved. Uh, Terry got me involved in this a few years ago, but I, I heard the history from him and also from Laura Kolb at the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, she's the uh, stalwart person that shepherded this uh, document through, I think, maybe eight or nine years worth of, uh, worth of internal review and uh, external input. So I... Uh, I'm pretty familiar with with the reasons why this document exists. Uh, It really has to do with the fact that we know, and especially the EPA is very aware, that there are moisture problems in buildings. Uh, You can can actually quantify that, uh, which the EPA did during the 1990s. They they did a uh, fairly comprehensive survey uh, as background research for indoor air quality problems and found that of... um, of 100 uh, randomly selected public and private buildings uh, in 10 different climate regions, about 85% of those buildings had been damaged at one point or another in their lives by moisture or water problems. And and at the time of the survey, 45% of them uh, had leaks uh, at the time when the data was collected. So it's not an uncommon problem to have moisture. And I know that the, the real concern there is not so much just the the moisture problem, but what, what it leads to. And that's actually been quantified, too, by the uh, uh, Institute of Medicine report uh, in 2002, I guess it was, 2004, more accurately. And, uh, and then more recently, some of the folks from the Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory quantified the the effect of what's known about moisture problems, and they estimated uh, that uh, about 20% of the asthma cases that we have in the U.S. can be reasonably attributed to dampness problems in buildings. So we're talking there, you know, 21% of 21 million people that have problems with asthma at the very least. So it's a significant concern, and, and that's why the the EPA. I uh, decided to uh, uh, to put together some best practices and gather what's known about about uh, about moisture in buildings and how to avoid problems as a result. You know, Lou, I I appreciate that answer, and I I want to let listeners know that this document is just fantastic, and and that information is included in the document in the introduction, and then then they talk a little bit about. You know, how many buildings were affected? I was, you know, I'd heard that before, but it still strikes me every time I hear it, 45% of the buildings that were being surveyed at that time had moisture problems at at that time. That's just, you know, kind of hard to believe in a way, isn't it? 
Well, I think it is, uh, and so you wonder about the uh, the exact buildings that were sampled, but uh, it was a pretty good cross-section, and it was 10 different climate zones. So, uh, you know, and I suppose it all depends on what you, what you decide is water damage. So if you have water leaks inside uh, and you got stains, well, that's water damage. So, you know, if you, and then if you have uh, people with major health problems, that's also perhaps uh, water damage. So I suppose it depends on the magnitude of the problem. I that see. wasn't that wasn't discussed in the, uh, in the in the introduction to the book here, so we're, we don't really know. But, well, <laughs> but that, the bottom line is, water happens in buildings and places it shouldn't. <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, and that's been a, uh, I think, an issue in general about just dealing with moisture and dampness. Is what is the definition of of dampness. I didn't notice anything in the document that kind of defined what dampness is. Did I miss that, or is that? No, you sure didn't, Joe. Um, and, uh, and and as you look through the uh, references on the web and through everything that uh, Terry's written, that I've written, that other people have written, you're not going to find a definition of dampness. And that actually is one of the one of the items action items that ASHRAE has taken on as a uh, um, as a task is to try and figure out how we might be able to provide a quantitative and measurable definition of dampness enough dampness to you know present a uh, a, a potential health risk and that <laughs> Glad you asked. <laughs> is a subject of the uh, of a multidisciplinary task group that Ashray has put together, and I have the honor to be the chair of that uh, of that task group. And we're just getting organized now. So uh-huh. give us a, a year or two, and perhaps we'll have something for you. But at the moment, nobody over the last hundred years has, <laughs> has had the courage to take a crack at it until Ashray said, "We got to figure it out." <laughs> well, that's good to hear. I'm, I'm glad I didn't realize that, Lou. I'm glad I asked. Um, I have some friends, actually, I know you know them both, Kevin Kennedy and and Carl Grimes. They they wrote a paper on that subject, and uh, they kind of collected all the data, as I recall, that, you know, all the way, different ways people define dampness. And that was, it was a real issue for them. I think they made some suggestions on how they would define it. And I can't remember what group it was a part of, but we can check on that after the show and uh, make sure that you have that information, if you don't already. Well, I, I, I am aware of that. Uh, Carl's a, a good friend, and, and he was one of the volunteers that participated in the ASHRAE committee to develop the position of the society on indoor dampness and mold. And uh, he shared the draft of that paper with me. I believe he's presenting it. Um, it's either last week or the week before at Indoor Air 2014 in Hong Kong. Yeah. Uh, so that's, uh, that's a great place. Also, Ed Light, uh, another one of the investigators that's been working in uh, construction moisture has has taken a crack at uh, different ways of, of defining dampness in buildings, especially during construction. So our group is going to try and gather all this input and put it into a coherent form and figure out how we can do that. That's not part, I, I, it's important that you know that this is not part of the EPA effort. The EPA effort is, uh, uh, is separate. Uh, so uh, a little bit of a a little bit of a sidebar here on on, on the dampness definition. EPA hasn't hasn't come up with one, nor have they attempted to just yet. Okay. Well, I, I appreciate that. And by the way, Lou, so you know, we're texting back and forth with Terry right now. He doesn't have an internet connection for some reason where he's at, and I'm trying to text him the 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 uh, directions for getting on. So we'll have Terry here any moment. All right. So. Let's let's talk a little bit first about what your role was in the development of the manual of the of the guidance document, and then when we get Terry on, we can talk a little bit about his overall, you know, his long term role. Well, first of all, I don't know if you mentioned. Did you mention how long this has been in development? Well, something like eight or nine years. Terry could be more accurate on that, but uh, a long time, uh, a very long time, and and that's the. Uh, the difficulty, on the other hand, there's good news um, as a result because the understanding of moisture problems and the definition of what makes a moisture problem and what doesn't or what, what construction problems lead to it, that's been a moving target. And so the book has really benefited from input over a lot of years. That, I think, is good because then you don't you know, jump off the box and make some assumptions about what's a big problem, what's a small problem without getting a lot of input. And the EPA went way out of their way to make sure that they had input from 
from a lot of ASHRAE committees as well as people that do forensic uh, investigations of building, and, and of course Terry being the, the lead author in that area. All right, now he was the lead author, and I noticed some other contributors. I, I'm not seeing the page right now, but I know I, I know he wanted to give credit to I think it was Laura Cole, but at EPA for her role on this, and then maybe there were a few others. What was your role? I, as I understand it, you were primarily the HVAC guy. Yeah, well, what happened is that uh, there had been some draft, uh, early. some of the early drafts had spoken about HVAC in a fairly brief way. Um, Don Gatley, uh, ASHRAE fellow and life member and uh, author of ASHRAE's psychometric books, I had provided some early input, but, but Don retired. <laughs> so uh, uh, after after that happened, uh, Terry got me involved to pick up the ball and uh, and expand the discussion about HVAC beyond beyond the uh, the early drafts that Don had so carefully put together. Um, so that's that's been my role as uh, sort of a, a companion to uh, uh, to Terry and uh, all of this in support of Laura's program. Uh, that, <laughs> one of many things that she juggles. <laughs> oh, I'll bet. I'll yeah. bet. And, you know, Lou, you you and I talked a little bit about the way the document is structured, and maybe I could have you kind of tell listeners, I mean, they, obviously they, they'll get a copy of it. We put a link in our show announcement. I'm sure people have a copy of it. Let's not necessarily discuss so much how it's structured, but maybe why it's structured that way. Sure. Uh, the... Because a document went through so many different revisions, there are a lot of different discussions over those years about how best to structure the information. And what I really like about what uh, you know Laura and Terry agreed on for this structure is it's arranged according to the phase of construction that you're entering. So as opposed to a chapter on HVAC or a chapter on building enclosure, uh, instead, the chapters are arranged by phase of construction. So chapter one is probably all that most people will need to know if you're not directly involved in design or operation or construction of buildings. Chapter one is an introduction and gives you the, the overview. Uh, and it's interesting, and it's not terribly difficult technically to get at. So that's a great way to start. But then beginning at, with Chapter 2, 3, 4, and so forth, uh, it, it goes in order of a construction project. It starts with construction planning uh, and then goes through design, uh, the design phases, and then through construction uh, and then through the operation and maintenance. So if you are more or less concerned in your daily life with operation and maintenance, uh, you could read Chapter 1 to get an overview if you weren't familiar with the issues, uh, and then you could go right to the uh, Chapter on Operation Maintenance. You don't have to dig through uh, you know, all the different uh, disciplines to get the information. It's all arranged for you in the form that you need to know it uh, uh, in that particular chapter. Same is true for design. Same is true for construction planning. Same is true for construction. So it's, uh, it's, it's an elegant way to do it. Uh, all of the HVAC is not in one place. It's scattered according to the, when the decisions are being made, according to who's making those decisions, so that it's in a form that's easiest for them to absorb. Yeah, I like it. I, I especially I agree wholeheartedly with that your description of the first chapter. I think for a lot of people that would be, you know, that's kind of the, the foundation that you need. And, in fact, I... I I've been working a lot more with water restoration type companies and and I've been you know I'm on the board with the IICRC now so I'm more in tune to what the instructors of the WRT courses applied structural drying courses and I I like the way you guys handle that foundational material you know like um water or was it air holding water, that whole controversy there. You kind of, you know, you, you, you gave it the simple version and said, yeah, we can use that terminology as a kind of a simplification, but then you had a footnote that gave the more detailed, more scientific description of how those two interact, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I thought that was handled really nicely, and the psychrometrics was, you know, real specific to determining moisture in buildings as opposed to, you know, um, just going through a whole psychrometric chart review and going through all the different things. Uh, you know, and that section there, it seems to me, 
probably had a good deal of your input, but maybe I'm wrong. I, I noticed there was a big focus on DuPont. Can you just talk about that for just a moment? Sure. Uh, that, that I think, is one of the big, you know, when I think about the book and, and what went into it and all the different people that contributed to it, and a lot of the HVAC stuff, you know, funneled through me, not necessarily my stuff uh, altogether, but it funneled through me because I was doing that part of the writing. The, the, the issue about relative humidity versus dew point is really, I think, an awfully important takeaway. Relative humidity is useful. It's important information. It, uh, uh, it's what is easy to measure and people are aware of it. But when we look at the typical problems that we see in buildings, uh, more often than not it has to do with the fact that the dew point is high, more so than the relative humidity. So uh, if you can focus on the dew point and make sure that the dew point stays in a, in a comfortable range and in a range that's comfortable for the building, and that would be somewhere between a 50-degree Fahrenheit dew point and a 60-degree Fahrenheit dew point, 55 being perhaps a nice nice compromise in many situations. That's really going to help everybody stay out of trouble with respect to moisture problems. And uh, you can't say the same thing about relative humidity. If you say, well, I want to keep the relative humidity under 60%, that works until you shut the building down, let's say, in the summertime in a school. So now you have an 85-degree temperature, 60-degree relative humidity. You think you're fine, but you've got problems that happen when you intermittently cool the building to keep it below that temperature. Because the dew point's so high, then you create cold surfaces. And then because the dew point's so high and you have cold surfaces, you end up with either condensation or moisture absorption and mold growth. So it's just a much more reliable metric in terms of if you're going to keep one in your mind, <laughs> both for design and for operation, 55-degree dew point's a really nice guidepost. Above that level, one might want to be uncomfortable. Above 60, one might want to be very uncomfortable. Uh, and below below 55, one is probably quite comfortable, no matter where you are in the world. <laughs> yeah, I love that. That makes it very simple. I mean, yeah. it, it keeps it simple. And I know we have a lot of school people that, that follow the show, and I think that will help them better understand why they have the problems they have, especially in the summer. I think you, you've, you've hit on it really well. All right. Now, Lou, what we wanted to do, and, and Jess just talked to Terry. I think we're going to get him on now. Mm-hmm. But what we wanted to do is get your three takeaways, and I think I just kind of uh, picked up on one. Is that true? Definitely. That's, uh, that was my uh, sort of third third point of the of the takeaways and i okay. think it's a it's a really useful one because it is pretty simple um, and it leads to a lot of other good decisions when you focus on dew point all right before i get terry in here there's one other part of the document i'd just kind of like you to maybe give people your thoughts on and that is oh, about there's terry good terry will be right with you that is the appendices um the the appendix a the pen test the roof inspection checklist the testing moisture during construction air pressure mapping, etc. I wonder if, uh, you know what, let's get Terry on the line while we've got a chance. Sure. Hello, Terry. Oh, uh, hey, hi, folks. We got you. All right. This is Joe Hughes. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it was a project, but we got you on. I'm sorry. I know you had internet <laughs> problems, but uh, it's great to have you joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joe. It's great to be here. Terry, we were talking a little bit about uh, the appendices. Lou, came, Lou gave us a good overview of you know how long it took and and you know why the document was developed and so on. We also talked about the structure of the document. I didn't really get into the appendices, and I wonder if you had any comments on you know how you chose these appendices and why they were included. Maybe. Uh, let's see. Well, we have several appendices there. Um, like the a number pen- of them are. Our sample checklist for the that are geared towards the uh, facilities folks. So, so we have some checklist there. We have uh, an appendix, an appendix. On, let's see. Now I have to remember them all. Well, you got the pen test. Let's start with the pen test. Tell oh, people what the pen the, test is. I love that. <laughs> well, the the pen test has been kind of kicking around for quite a while, and uh, but it's I've never seen it really written down anywhere and it, it's just a, a a relatively simple way to determine whether you have any weakness in the design of the 
air barrier system, the um, insulation layers, uh, or the the liquid water control in the exterior enclosure. And it, it, I, what the, my my intention was, I said this is something you have to do during the design of the building because I wanted the designated smart folks to think about continuity of those three control layers and eliminate as, as far as possible any weaknesses in their continuity. So that, that was the whole idea with that. And, that. and then we have a discussion about why you can't really trace uh, vapor control in a single layer. You have to consider the whole assembly. Yeah. Yeah, that was that's always something that was tough for me to explain. I think you did a nice job on it, and and that'll help me in the future when I try and explain that concept. Now, Lou, I'm going to do something a little unusual. Um, I want you, if you would, to ask Terry a question. Down when he said that, I I can always count on Joe to liven things up. Change things a little. No, what I what I'd like to do is since. Since Terry missed the first part and you were kind of filling us in on some of the background stuff, I'd like maybe if you could think of a question to ask him that would kind of fill in the blanks on some of the things we've already discussed. Sure, I, I can think of a I, I can think of a question, Terry. If you think about all the different things with respect to moisture control in buildings, uh, you know, what is your nomination for hierarchy of concerns? What should you be thinking about first, second, and third? I, I got my own hierarchy here, based on what you've written here. But I'm interested in you know how, how you think <laughs> about that. You know, when when someone's approaching this subject for the first time, what should they be worried about first? <laughs> well, it, it's in terms of severity of damage and frequency of occurrence, it's keep the rainwater out and, and prevent plumbing leaks. <laughs> that's my, that's yeah. my, my my first one. Uh, you know, unless it, I, I, or maybe even if you're in a flood zone, if you're in a flood zone, then you have all, all that aggravated by you know the groundwater may rise up over top of the roof. So that that's my first one, and the second one, Lou, for me would be um, sort of large scale or wide trend problems in uh, within the building itself or in the, within the exterior enclosure, because when most condensation things are ephemeral, they come and they go, but if you if you have water condensing on the backside of the final wallpaper over the course of the entire year, you've got a, a catastrophic problem when it covers thousands of square feet, maybe in a building. That that should needs to be avoided. That's that's about the answer I figured there. I, I, that's that's certainly you know one of the takeaways that I have from all the stuff that was written by other people is like you know worry about the water first and my you know my concern which is humidity and dew point and stuff certainly that's a concern but that's maybe the third or fourth thing to worry about <laughs> compared to lots of water. Lots of water. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But then you know but humidity. I mean, Lou. On the other hand, the the humidity problems can be more difficult to. To solve, I think. At least that's been my experience. Maybe it's because of my background. I don't have the right background, but those are tough to solve. Well, you know, humidity problems uh, in buildings, yeah, they can be pretty expensive to solve. I guess I should say economically more expensive than than you know rainwater intrusion or or roofing problems or foundation water problems. But they they can be difficult to understand, um, more so than obvious. You know, rainwater off the roof comes in at the foundation. Okay, well, we know what to do. It's going to be expensive, but we know how to fix it uh, if we decide that we need to fix it. And it's always a good idea. Humidity is a bit of a mystery because it comes and goes and because there's dew point relative humidity and it all gets very confusing to people. But it doesn't have to be that tricky. Uh, it sometimes can be expensive, but it doesn't have to be tricky. In most commercial buildings, the 
real key to humidity control is one critical point. If, if you look at the humidity loads on a commercial building, uh, and we're not talking about residential here, we're talking about commercial buildings, really it's the ventilation air and the makeup air. So if you have uh, makeup air that is not being dried, then what you have is you have makeup air and ventilation air that's coming and that's adding water to the building in the form of water vapor. So to solve that problem, it doesn't have to be tough. You just have to grab that air through another system, perhaps, or through an additional component and dry the living tar out of it. Hmm. You know, get that air dew point of the incoming air down below 55 Fahrenheit, below 12, below 13 degrees C. You know, and you, you're really not going to have lots of humidity problems indoors, except in extraordinary circumstances. And we're leaving out here the cold climate problems, where you, a dew point that high would be a big problem in a cold climate. But talk for the moment about most humidity and moisture problems. And in the U.S., at least, we're, we're talking about high humidity during summer months. And it just doesn't have to be that tough to solve, but you do have to do it. And if you don't do it, it's going to be a problem. If I could hark back to, uh, to Don Gatley for a second, a sure. uh, good friend of, uh, of both of us. Uh, Don, uh, when I was creating a troubleshooting course for ASHRAE and for the U.S. Marines, I put together this whole big troubleshooting course, and he says, Lou, you're making it too complicated. <laughs> he says, says <laughs> sometimes happens with me. <laughs> and Don said, look, you know, I've done 79 moisture investigations over 40 years, 79, and all but four of those. So we're talking 75 moisture investigations. All of those 75 were caused by one of two problems or both. Either there, there wasn't enough dry makeup air or the makeup air and ventilation air was coming in was too humid. So if you just make sure that the building doesn't suck in humid air, you know, you've got enough air, and you make sure that, that air that's coming in is dry, that's going to solve a tremendous number of your moisture problems in buildings, 75 out of 79 in, in 40 years in his case. So I was like, okay, well, it doesn't have to be that tough. <laughs> it really, okay, now how do we get that through to, to the client sometimes? That's the tough part at times, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that, that, that's a that's a more difficult. But hopefully, the book will help with that. Yeah, well, it will actually, Terry. I mean, you know, you have to seal these gaping holes in your building envelope. I mean, building enclosure. I mean, and you know, and now I got a question before we go to halftime for either one of you or both. I live in a cold climate. I'm in the the mountains of Pennsylvania here, and but not far from me, maybe an hour south is. Western Maryland, and and it seems to me like they're having more problems with humidity and relative humidity and temperature, you know, cold surface issues than than they've seen in years. Is that something you see in other parts of the country? Are the are the climate zones changing? Well, we are seeing um, more days where the outdoor dew point is above 70 degrees in, uh, over the past decade up in the northeast. That's been my experience, Joel. So I, I think, and, and I'm, I'm seeing problems that I used to only see in the Gulf Coast up into lower, lower England and the lower northeast states. Some of that is because we're, I think we're air conditioning buildings that we didn't use to air condition. Yep. Like public schools and courthouses and that kind of thing. And But also, it, it's clear that uh, we're getting higher dew points in the past decade okay. for for longer period. We always used to get them, but we get two or three a year. And now we, get, we might get a, a week or two altogether. That's been my experience, too, and it's it's fascinating to to see people grasp with the, you know, how you deal with this because we're, you know, from a cold climate. We don't typically see that, uh, at least for an extended period of time. All right, gentlemen, what I want to do is, let's see, I got 1230, 12.35. I went over a little bit. I'm going to stop. I'm going to break. I'm going to um, – we got about a two-minute clip here. I want to thank our sponsors. When we come back, I want you guys to think over the break a little bit about – 
your biggest takeaways from this document? Uh, I got one from Lou. I think it was maybe third on the on the list, but I want to kind of get your biggest takeaways from you on, you know, what what you think is most important to get through to our listeners um, with respect to the document, whether it was you know how it came about or what was it, what it ultimately ended up in it. Let's uh, take. 90 seconds, Jess, and we'll thank our sponsors. We'll be right back with Terry Brennan and Lou Harriman. We're talking moisture control guidance for building design, construction, and maintenance from the EPA. Nine years in the making, but well worth it, in my opinion. IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Gold sponsors are Particles Plus Engineers and Manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters and air quality monitoring instrumentation. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And AEML Laboratories, free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at AEMLinc.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at WolfSense.com. Association sponsors are the Indoor Air Quality Association, a multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Learn more at iaqa.org and RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. All right, this is Radio Joe Hughes. We're back for the second half of our interview with Terry Brennan and Lou Harriman. We're going, we're talking about the moisture control guidance from EPA. Lou, let's start with you. What's your biggest takeaway from this this guidance document? Well, I got I got several big takeaways, but um, before I get to a couple of those, I think one thing that we haven't covered is the nature of this document, which I think is important for listeners to to understand clearly. Um, when people think about the EPA, sometimes you think about their regulatory side. Uh, there are things that the EPA is charged with enforcing because it's federal law. This is not in that category. This is just good ideas and good practices based on what industry has developed over you know many years, especially the last nine. So it's important to realize this is not a law. It's not a regulation. Uh, nobody's going to come to your house and, and say, gee, you're not following EPA guidelines on, on, uh, on moisture control. Um, it's just a, a series of good ideas. And in that way, to me, it's a little bit like the same thing about parachutes. I mean, there's no federal law that requires that you use a parachute to jump out of an airplane. You don't have to do that. <laughs> okay. you know? uh, so this is in the vein of the, the the guidance and guidelines and good practices that have come from the EPA before. Uh, people listening to this show, I'm sure, are going to be quite familiar with the EPA guidelines for removing mold from buildings, the remediation that forms, in many ways, the foundation for best practices. And this comes from the same source. This is, comes from out of Laura Colt's shop, and it's a courageous thing to do to collect all this stuff and provide it. So it's your tax dollars at work giving you good guidelines, and it's not a lie. It's just good ideas. All right. Do you have a second takeaway you want to make sure we get to before? I don't want to run out of time before I get to sure, three. Sure, sure. And I, I, I'm just running the, the, the top three takeaways in order. Uh, the first one is uh, drying the ventilation air. It, because we're talking here about humidity issues, and, and so that's my particular area. Terry's going to have a different series, I'm sure. But my top three takeaways are, number one, dry the ventilation air, and life will be simple. Don't dry the ventilation air, and life can be complicated. So that's number one, the first and the most important. The second one is how you design the ventilation dehumidification system. And what's not generally understood is that ASHRAE, our engineering society, until 1997 didn't have data about uh, about the peak humidity loads in the environment. 
What's worse is we thought we had we had it, but we didn't. What we had is we had peak temperature, peak sensible temperature loads from the environment when it's hottest outside. And we thought that when it was hottest outside, and if we took the average humidity when it's hottest outside, we had the worst case for dehumidification. But that's wrong. And it's wrong by about 30 to 50% of the load. So uh, beginning in 1997, the ASHRAE Handbook of Fundamentals uh, ASHRAE research dollars that work here, about a quarter million bucks worth, uh, figured out what the peak dew points are. And the peak dew points, the, the highest humidity in the outdoors, which is what you need for ventilation systems to size dehumidification components for them, that happens at a more moderate temperature. So, you know, for instance, uh, you know, Boston, you might get a peak temperature at 91, 92, but the peak dew point probably happens at 81, 82, and the peak dew point is uh, uh, at that lower temperature is really, really wet compared to what it is at the peak temperature. So if you design the ventilation system based on ASHRAE peak dew point, you'll probably be in good shape. If you design it, the ventilation system based on the peak sensible temperature when it's hottest outside, you're probably going to be very significantly short of dehumidification capacity. So that's my second takeaway. Uh, number one, dry the air. Number two, use the ASHRAE peak dew point to, uh, to, to size your dehumidification component. And then the third is uh, uh, what we mentioned before a little bit, which is if you're focusing on controlling the dew point indoors, that will, that will give you better clues over time as to what's likely to be a problem and what's not likely to be a problem. Got it. Thank you. Lou, that's great. And I like the way you put them all three, bang, bang, bang. And the second one, I, that's something that I read, and I was like, you know, I had kind of seen that, heard it, but it didn't really hit home until I read it here, and then you mentioned it again. I think that's a very important topic that um, I'm glad you brought that up. Let's get back to Terry. Terry, I think we've yeah. got you back. Oh, that sounds better already, Terry. All yeah, right. Good. Um, let's, let's go over your three takeaways. What were your three biggest takeaways from the document? Well, the, the, my first takeaway is that uh, the, the, the way we organized it um, for each section, having our goals, strategies for achieving the goals, and ways of verifying that you have actually met the goals, but that that for me is very useful, a very useful way to think about it. And it, it uh, in the, the days now that building envelope commissioning is coming on strong, I, that I think it makes the document useful for people who are trying to commission the hydrothermal functions of uh, an enclosure. And is there a second takeaway? Uh, the sec second takeaway is uh, flashing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a pet peeve of mine. Yeah. Um, nah. You know, it's gravity, not just a good idea. It's the law. <laughs> I love it. I got it. Yeah. So, so uh, I, I, I've spent a career looking at no flashing, um, reverse flashing. <laughs> and silly flashing. <laughs> yep, yep. yep. So, which is which is that, most common? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The goop method of flashing. Yep. You know? <laughs> that, that's my second takeaway, and my my third takeaway is the um is the thinking about the condensation issues in that you may encounter in the enclosure. Um, and that the, the best thing that a person can do is use a, a, a wall roof assembly or a below grade wall assembly that they know it works because they've used it in that climate for a long time or someone they trust has, or, or it's from published guidance. There are a number of guidance documents that we reference in the, the manual where you can go and find assemblies that we know works in in what climates. And that that is very useful. Um, we are, I'm grateful to uh, Joe Stieberich for uh, allowing us to use um, sections, wall sections, uh, to illustrate condensation control in, in North American climates uh, so that people will have something they can look at and select from. Because if you're Trying something new and innovative, that then then you you you're tempted to try and model the thing, 
And modeling a new assembly is not something to undertake lightly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We really want to have someone who has a lot of experience in the field to uh, look at the results of modeling or have input into the, the variables that you select for the modeling. So you want to know the older guys that have been out there doing this for years, huh? That's, that's my best advice. Well, so there's, at my age, there's a lot of younger guys who've been out there doing it for years, too. I hear you, Terry. I lean and they're on, better looking than me, so I, I shouldn't suggest you hire them. I, I lean on them both. My son's younger, and he, but he's built more than I'll ever build, and you know he knows, okay, he sees that detail and says, well, what about this, Dad? I'm like, oh, that's a good oh, question. <laughs> yeah, when did he get so smart? That's what I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know when I became dumb, he turned about 16, I think, but I don't know why he got so smart. <laughs> but anyway, Terry, going back to the second one, um, flashing, I, I I really love a lot of these details in here. You mentioned Joe Steebrook, and, and I guess Building Science Corporation um, allowed you to use a lot of these, but you know, you've got you've got a ton of different references and, and, a, and a lot of great details in here, and, and I guess this is all public domain now. Well, that's a good question, Joe. The uh, I I'd actually have to talk to the EPA about. I'm trying to remember the Lou. You may actually remember the agreement about this. I can't remember it. Yeah. But. Well, I, I think once the EPA publishes it, unless it's uh, referenced as uh, still being copyrighted by somebody else, it's in the public domain. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's uh, you know paid for by taxpayer dollars. <laughs> it's it's yeah. it's great stuff. Now, with respect to flashing, Terry, what? Um, I guess. Hmm. How do I phrase this question? Have, have you seen improvement over the last maybe five, ten years on flashing? I've seen both improvement and uh, think, things that I think I may lead to problems at some point. So uh, I guess the short answer is yes. There are, there are a lot more people thinking about two-wall flashings in better ways than they used to and, and flashing in general. Uh, and it's helped a lot that the window manufacturers... And, now all publish what they think is the best way to flash their window systems or flash window systems using their product. That I see quite a lot happening. I'm nervous about um, peel and stick flashings, not not because I think there's a problem with the product, but because it, it depends on the installer's origami skills, kind of. <laughs> And and, mm-hmm. and and I and it's tempting to to use it in a place where you probably you should be using a swimming pool liner. Okay, okay. It's, it might not be the right product for some of the situations I see it used in. And the the last thing uh, with it is uh, the way it sequences for um, commercial buildings is it's very hard to have your peel and stick wall membrane flash down on top of the leg of through wall flashing at the bottom of a brick veneer or a stone veneer um, and have the drainage plane and air barrier membrane come up behind the vertical leg so that you have continuity of the air barrier and you have the drainage plane flash correctly on the, the, um, the through wall flashing. So we 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 end and a lot of times what we end up with is uh, a uh, peel and stick flashing adhered directly to the drainage plane on the wall behind it with maybe a termination bar at the top and and generally that's probably going to work pretty good because it's sort of double or triple protected but that that's a place where workmanship and you might have some seepage that will result in problems I see. back down behind that. Let me let me ask you, that kind of leads into a question I, I asked. I talked to Lou a little bit about this before the show. I, I've got the, you've got these great examples in the beginning of the guidance document, and you've got photos of moisture issues and, and what the issue was, but there's nothing about how we solved that issue. 
to build creative tension there, you know, to build tension on the part of the reader. <laughs> is that what it is? Okay. What advice can you give? answers to this What advice can you give listeners? I mean, when it comes to that, it, first of all, is there any? Do you know of any plans? Because Lou didn't, you know, he hasn't worked as closely with EPA on this, and and he didn't know of any that I'm aware of. That, as I recall, do you know of any plans to produce something that helps give us some of the answers? Right. This is what a great question, Joe. This is uh, this would be a guide for solving moisture problems in existing buildings. Yep. Yes. Right. Absolutely, and, and can you? <laughs> what, what if the, what if they designed and built this building and nobody read the EPA moisture control guide? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> or what about the how many million we have out there that were built before this came out? How you know? How do we fix those? Uh, the that's a great question. Okay. You, when you, I. I, I find myself at times saying things like, well, we have to take the brick off. People hate <laughs> to hear that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to, to fix this, uh, or or we have to take out six rows of brick, and we're going to do it in six-foot sections, and we're going to put in through wall flashing and flash it to the, oops, there's no building paper behind the brick veneer. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. There's nothing really to flash it to, is there? Nope. <laughs> the... the those are those are expensive situations, and and existing buildings. I frequently find myself where the fix is going to be would be there is a fix that would be expensive. The expense might actually exceed the value of the property, um, or it certainly exceeds the budget of the people the, of the owner. Yep. Uh, and, and when I'm when I'm working with poor people with mold problems or moisture problems. I, I, there are times when I, I I cast out my guidance and, and I do something that will prevent mold from growing without solving the moisture problem. That's when I typically go down the list. Okay, we can't we can't necessarily solve the moisture problem. Let's get rid of as many food sources as we can. Let's um, you know do other things that we can to try and and at least put a Band-Aid on it and hold it off. Yeah, we can. All right, we can't install drainage to keep your crawl space dry, so we're going to write it off as a swimming pool, and we're going to draw a line further up. We're going to make it so that the humid air can't get to the mold food. Yep. And, and the mold food that it might get to, we're going to treat that with a biostat so that it will be hard for the spores to germinate. Uh, and we'll manage the airflow by we'll pressurize this cavity or we'll depressurize the crawl space. We'll seal the vents and depressurize the crawl space or something like that. Yeah. I, if I can join in the conversation at this point, uh, the humidity problems are, are often in that same category as we discussed before. Um, but, but to be fair, there are lots of solutions to humidity problems that are within the capability of operation and maintenance people, uh, provided they understand that the big humidity load is coming from the ventilation air. Uh, in order, those are you know, reduce the ventilation air to what is appropriate as opposed to what might be happening by accident. So, you know, measuring the amount of ventilation air, making sure it's not too much, can be a big help. Number two, you can make sure that the air filters on the makeup air are clean so that the makeup air units are not obstructed uh, and therefore uh, the exhaust fans are sucking in air through other places than the makeup air unit. That's another really easy one. But then, then you once you get past those things, then you get to money. You know, like it's not dry enough. Well, it's got to be drier. So then it is a problem, and uh, and then that can get expensive. But but it's not hopeless. Uh, it, it, we have in ASHRAE we put together a humidity control troubleshooting course. And uh, you can, there are things that you can do, but it, you make a really good point, Joe, is that this book, for all of its virtues and all of its comprehensive discussion, really doesn't talk about, you got a problem, here's how you can solve it. And maybe that's something that EPA could consider, you know, adding. Well, and I think what I would, you know, when I was thinking about, I always try and anticipate the answer when I ask these questions, and I thought to myself, well, maybe 
part of the solution is to go back and at least understand how it should have been built in the first place. And and that's where the document does a great job. And and then we can look at how it should have been built in the first place or what, you know, what the state of the art recommendations are in the first place and then we we have at least a better idea of where the the gold standard is and then we can do some of the things like you guys are talking about here to get as close to that gold standard as we can um but i would love to see a document if you guys ever you know put your heads together on a document that that helps us with solving these problems then you know the existing ones oh that would be that would be tremendous and i know like joe has some great stuff on the buildingscience.com website um and they're they're and maybe doe is even coming out with some of this stuff i, I think they are uh their, their new website is getting better all the time and, and maybe that's a, a the type of project that they could start to handle i don't know I, I like the way you uh think think about this Joe, the, I think you said it very well um, to take a look at, well, if I were designing a new, how would I have done it, and how close can I get to that with the, the hand I was dealt? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guys, I, we're running a little behind, but I'd love to get Dr. Wow in. Can you both stick around for another five, ten minutes? Yeah, sure. Awesome. Sure. Let's get Dieter in here. Yep. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw hide. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw Let's get Dr. Wow. And do we have his music? Oh, yeah, I gotta have that. All right. Hello, Dieter. Good to have you. Hi there. Good afternoon. I liked Artie Shaw better than that other music you played. <laughs> and uh, I thought I wasn't the only one who has Artie Shaw records. <laughs> well, I have records, too, and CDs. Anyway, uh, but that, I'm giving away my age here, uh, which is all right. I love hanging around with the older guys, Dieter. Uh, well, that's what the girl said last night, too. Yes. <laughs> Dieter, I'm Dieter. lying. I'm lying. <laughs> <laughs> but I think uh, there are a couple of things, uh, 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 Lou said, and it's one of those forgotten or overlooked issues that if you, have, if you are designing a ventilation system for people in an enclosure in a house, that the dew point is off, in incredible importance. Uh, I never designed really uh, on a large scale uh, ventilation system for houses. I did a lot of industrial ventilation where my makeup air came from the outside. That was it. Whatever it was, that's what it was. Tough luck. And those were huge buildings, foundries or something. There was no air conditioning and stuff like this. They didn't even think about it. But if we do uh, houses and so on, the dew point is uh, of, of absolute interest. Here is a sideline. Every morning when I turn on my computer, I got a wonderful weather forecast, and it told me what the uh, barometric pressure was, what the dew point was. They have now the new and improved one. There are a couple of more colored pictures in there. But they took the dew point out and the barometric pressure. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> now they have a curve. That, believe it or not, I, I, I will be calling. Uh, this afternoon, I will be calling. Now they show me a, a curve that shows me that the temperature in the morning is by and large cooler, and then during the day it goes up, and guess what? <laughs> during the night it's going to go down again. Who would have thought of that? Uh, <laughs> uh, it's unbelievable. And I know what they tell me. They said, well, most people didn't look at the dew point. They don't know what it is anyway. I agree with them there. <laughs> True. But we're trying to get that out to people, Dieter. Hopefully we will. Well, some, uh, not in my lifetime. Well, you never know, Dieter. Hey, let me ask a quick question. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. 
Uh, Lou mentioned it that the EPA uh, looked at housings in 10 different climate zones and all of that, and one of their criterion was uh, that if there is a stain, uh, they have a water problem. In my second bedroom, in fact, that's the bedroom in which Joe slept several times, <laughs> he may have seen it, um, there is a spot on the ceiling which is definitely due to uh, moisture, no doubt about it. And uh, But my house is bone dry. And what is, that? there we go to uh, Terry's point uh, when he mentioned uh, flashing. Uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the spot, the spot occurred after water came past or through the lousy flashing at the critical uh, uh, place of a, a, a roof where the roof meets the chimney. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where it came down. No doubt the insulation above that room was also wet. This whole thing happened 12 years ago, so I don't think I have a water problem there anymore. And uh, I measured I measured the relative humidity uh, 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 frequently during the winter, and I couldn't get it up over 30% of whatever I did. <laughs> but uh, I, I put in a, uh, a, uh, a vaporizer, a humidifier, and that didn't do a damn thing, but I put a lot of distilled water in it. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, I don't think I need a, a committee to uh, define dampness for me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have always very solutions to very difficult problems. I, I just can see a committee of 50 people. Uh, 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 to... Uh, 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 define dampness. It's very simple. If you are uh, doing your laundry, once the water is gone with which you washed your clothes, and that one is gone, and you take the clothes out, they are wet. <laughs> now you go through the spin cycle, three, four minutes, or whatever it takes, and now when you take your clothes out, they are not wet anymore, now they are damp. Okay. Now you hang them up or you put them in a dryer. I usually try to hang them up. I don't like dryers. And now they are starting, they are still damp. Now they are starting to dry. Of course, here on Earth, they will never, ever be dry. Dry means zero moisture in there. Of course, they come uh, to equilibrium with the vapor pressure of the moisture in the air. And that is, I'm wearing right now, a damp shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I guess but we are. In between wet and dry, uh, there's got to be da- uh, dampness. Uh, so that is all right. So we mentioned the flashing and uh, the condensation issues. I think they are relatively easy to address. Once you know that you have a condensation problem, there is usually, you made a big mistake. It's not a small little mistake. It's not a pinhole in a tire. It's a hole in a tire, and you have a flat tire. The other one takes a week to go down. So I think that is what is happening over there. Two point over here again. I wrote it down again. Uh, That's right. The ventilation air into a building is important. It is important. I have no control over it, and I didn't control it uh, during yeah, during the winter. I would have liked to humidify my air, which but I don't have a system that puts air from the outside into the house where I could condition it. I don't have that. In my case, it comes through the nooks and crannies and the holes and gaps uh, in the, in the house. Uh, the other thing is also I always hear that. We don't know what happened when the house was built. My house is approximately 35 years old. I have, and I bought it when it was five years old. I have absolutely no idea what the weather was when my house was built, whether it rained or not, whether there was a roof over it, whether there was no roof over it when it rained. But I don't have a moisture problem. I don't see anything anywhere. Uh, that I can say is somehow related to moisture. 
and my neighbors, that's all built by the same uh, developer, uh, don't seem to have a problem either of those whom I know. There are a bunch of them I don't know. Some of them I don't even want to know, and I'm sure that <laughs> they have the same opinion about me. But uh, anyway, so I think I think we are looking at a bunch of problems which are very common, some of which are relatively easy, easy to solve or to control. And of course, there's always an outlier here or there. One is very easy to, uh, to fix and the other one, my God, it takes you forever to think about it and find a solution to a huge problem. And there's a financial aspect, too. Oh, good. Oh, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, indeed. Uh, Let me get a quick, Lou. So now you're, you don't have to have a, an ASHRAE committee on dampness anymore. Deer just solved it for you, right? Well, that's pretty handy. <laughs> That'll save us a lot of work. Deer. I do kind of like that, though. You know, you're wet, no, you're damp, or you're dry. I know what you mean. It's, uh, uh, they, 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 and you... I think that you bring up a really good point, which is that you, know, you actually have a progression of you know layers of moisture through time, and that's another complexity of this issue of defining dampness. And it's probably a whole other show, Joe, to talk about that. But the element of time and the persistence of dampness is really as maybe even more of an issue than than what level you have uh, and and where that is. And you know, it's a perfect. Example in your in your bedroom, you know, are you talking about? Okay, it's a stain. It's no big deal. But if it was dampness over time, and there were an infant there, and the crib was right next to the wall, and breathing in uh, whatever's growing on that wall, it's a totally different matter. So, so many of these things are very context dependent, and I, I don't think that um, uh, on the ASHRAE side, uh, anyone's under the impression that's going to be easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me, th yeah. Terry, let me ask you a final question here, and then I, I want you both to finish up with uh, another quick question I have. There was a, a text, and by the way, David Berg said to say hello, and he texted in a, a question about and this is something I, I really would like to know myself. Will EPA ever be printing copies of this document, or do we all have to print out the, what is it, 140 pages or so ourselves? Well, that's a that's a good question, and uh, we you know, Terry and I have encouraged EPA to try and find the money to print it, but it just isn't there. They're not funded for that. It's really simple. You know, mm -hmm. They're not funded for a lot of things, and this is one of the things that they're not funded for. But uh, it's available to everybody as a free PDF. And if I can put in a plug for the uh, URL where you can get it for free, Absolutely. Uh, I'd like to do that. It's, uh, so it's epa.gov, epa.gov slash IAQ, indoor air quality. So epa.gov slash IAQ slash moisture. It's really simple. And nice. then that will take you directly to the page where it's described, and then you can click on a link, and it's right there. And uh, in the last, uh, it's been a pretty popular document uh, in the last uh, couple of months, even though it wasn't officially introduced until very recently. It, uh, Laura was explaining to Terry and I the other day that this has been the most popular download from the EPA site for three out of the last five months. So it's uh, it's going fast, but the good news is it's infinite. So <laughs> grab it at uh, uh, epa.gov slash IAQ slash moisture, and uh, it's yours because you pay for it with your taxes. Beautiful. Well, I shall try it out this afternoon. Okay. And Terry... Um Terry, before we go, is there anything you'd like to add? We, you know, we've been through a lot over the last hour. We got, kind of got you on late. I want to make sure you get the last word, if possible. I think the only thing I would like to say, uh, Joe, is um, I'm I'm grateful for all the the people who contributed and uh, and helped us with this, and I'm grateful for you guys to have us on so that we can talk about the document. And I noticed that um, you 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 mentioned a few people up front here. In, in the table of contents or in the, in the acknowledgments and uh i know you and and uh i'm not familiar with chris is it petkowski chris Pet petkowski yeah he did some of the design work i guess or, or the illustrations yeah nice job yeah he's a uh he's a retired from the epa now chris he was a, a naval engineer uh 
uh, a Polish naval engineer who uh, migrated to the U.S. So it was very interesting to work with them. Lou, before we go, anything you'd like to add? No, just again, thank you very much uh, for for uh, letting us uh, talk about it, and and thanks again to the folks at the EPA who persisted uh, over nine years uh, in the idea that this is important information to get out, and I, I I give a tremendous amount of credit to them because it wouldn't have happened if they didn't have that kind of persistence in the face of some often difficult institutional obstacles. <laughs> I wonder yeah. if any other document ever took nine years to put together. Uh, yeah, and one one quick question again. I couldn't find my number two pencil. Uh, it's epa.gov slash IAQ slash moisture. That's it, exactly. Yeah. Okay, very good. Very good. I'm a little bit slow, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dieter. Well, thanks for joining us as always. And this is Radio Joe saying thank you so much to Terry Brennan and Lou Harriman, our guest this week. Great job and a, and a wonderful document. We, uh, I hope we get plenty more downloads after this week. And I look forward to hopefully seeing both of you in about a month up in uh, Westford. Thank you, Joe. All right, gentlemen. I want to say thanks, of course, to my engineer over here, Jessica Lawson. Great job. Of course, Dr. Weil, our technical director. Most importantly, our loyal listeners, thanks for joining us. Please come back next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reel saying thanks for listening.